It's the 15th of December, 2023. This is the Room Now podcast, and I'm Dr. Jack Cush. This podcast is brought to you by Room Now Live. You can register at roomnow.live for this January 27, 28 meeting. It's going to be in Dallas, Texas, and virtually. We hope to see you there. December 15th is a famous day. It is the day that the Bill of Rights became law in the United States. The Bill of Rights is the cornerstone of democracy, if not humanity. I think it dictates a lot of how we live, um, how we learn, and how we enjoy ourselves in this world. We're lucky we're rheumatologists. We're the happiest of specialists. Um, We love what we do. It is the specialty for thinkers, problem solvers, immunologists turned clinicians. It sort of fits the bill for many of us, does it not? So let's do today's podcast and get into what happened this past week on roomnow.com. A report from uh, Korea, actually it comes from scientific reports. They have a registry there uh, called ULTRA, and this registry uh, is prospectively enrolling patients with gout before they've started on urate-lowering therapy. And in this particular report, they compared outcomes uh, between those who did and did not achieve their target goal. And as you would imagine, the target goal here is a uric acid of less than 6 milligrams per deciliter. So those are the achievers. The rest of you are just non-achievers, and shame on you. Well, in their cohort of 117, how many of you think achieved their target in the first six months? This data is kind of along the lines of what we reported here before. Um, 71% in the study achieved their target of less than six. That means almost 30% did not. There are many reports that kind of show that number. Even what, and this is a rheumatologist registry, by the way, Korean rheumatologists doing the best they could, and yet a third of them did not achieve target. The literature says that it's about 30 to 40 percent of rheumatologists do not achieve target. Nonetheless, um, if you did achieve target, you were more likely to be adherent to urate lowering therapy 98 percent versus 76 percent. Treated target achievers were overall associated with taking their medicine, having a family history of gout, and being on antihypertensive medicines. That's kind of an interesting profile, is it not? Um, I would think it's the family history says, well, they know from family history what happens if you don't treat it. And maybe hypertensive medicines, maybe that means that they're used to taking medicines and they know the importance of prevention as far as outcomes. Maybe something to be learned there. A UK database called the Clinical Practice Research Database also looked at gout this past week, and they looked at 51,000 people with gout before they started urate-lowering therapy. And then they looked to see what happened to them as far as uh, flares and recurrent flares. One-third had flares uh, and or recurrent flares within the first 12 months uh, and had flares in the first 12 months. Recurrence of flare occurred in 17%. And that's the take home. If you have gout uh, and you need urate lowering therapy, you have a one in six chance of having a flare in the next year. The risk of flares goes up by being male, black, overweight, or obese, uh, 
having heart failure, diabetes, cardiovascular disease, being on diuretics. And if you have a high serum uric acid, well, that's not a big surprise. The number here is a 4.6 hazard ratio uh, for causing flares with hyperuricemia. Unfortunately, in this study, uh, only 28%, 28% were given urate-lowering therapy in the first year. That's abysmal. Now, this database is largely primary care. The publication is the BMC um, Primary Care Journal. Uh, and I think that, again, says that primary care, not doing so good at gout. The previous report says rheumatology, not doing as good at gout as you can or as you thought you might. Again, what are you doing to prevent this? I think you should be trying to get all the gout patients and manage them uh, and partner with the primary care sector. Uh, JAMA Open Network, the journal, published a report about Lyme disease. You don't see many Lyme disease reports these days. Um, and this is a um, Maryland, I think, specialty clinic that evaluated almost 1,400 Lyme pa patients. And and they tried to evaluate, the, put them into groups and then do group comparisons. And the groups were those who had symptoms only, those who had ECM first and nothing else, and those who had the whole shebang, including or uh, other uh, systemic or disseminated disease. And what the take home of this was that blacks and whites have different profiles. Basically, African-Americans were fivefold more likely to have disseminated disease. And if they did, they were also significantly more likely to have a prolonged delay in receiving antibiotic therapy. Disseminated disease is also more likely in men, only a 1.6 or 60% increased risk. The bottom line here is that African-Americans don't do so well with Lyme, largely because dark skin makes the erythema chronicum migrans, the ECM rash, more um, difficult to ascertain. It could also be access to care, differences in seeking care, but one of the big ones that the, I think that this point of the paper was saying you need to look more carefully in African-Americans for cutaneous manifestations. Um, I put up a report this week, uh, just an, an overview about MDA5 antibodies associated with a, 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 an aggressive subtype of inflammatory myositis patients. You know that. They have progressive lung disease. They have bizarre, odd, severe skin disease. Um, they have lymphopenia. There are a few other things. Um, but that was a prelude to this report out of the Journal of Autoimmunity that talked about the phenotype that's expressed on T-cells in patients with active dermatomyositis. And this might be unique and distinctive and possibly something worth, worth targeting in the future. Certainly we don't do that now. Specifically, they looked at pro, the uh, marker, the PD-1 marker, the program cell death uh, one expression on T cells. It's expressed on T, T, uh, T4s and T8s, et cetera. It is associated with activation of those T cells. It's also associated with exhaustion. So this exhausted phenotype that was associated with active idiopathic inflammatory myositis was PD-1 positive, CD8 positive T cells. Uh, I think it's interesting. I think it the pathogenesis insight here could relate to future better therapies or evaluation of patients at risk. Uh, you know, I'm a big proponent that rheumatologists need to be experts in the world of sleep and that if you ain't treating sleep, you ain't treating your arthritis patients because every time they're worse, it's more likely to be sleep than their arthritis. And if you don't know 
the 12 steps to sleep hygiene like I do, like the back of my hand. Number five, your bed is your, your bed is your special place for sleep only. Do not read or watch TV in bed. Your bed should be free of remote controls. No food, no children, no pets, no kidding. No, go to bed same time every night. Again, you have to, you gotta be able to manage sleep. Patients who have pain are not gonna sleep well. Then, then if they get secondary fibromyalgia or myofascial pain syndrome, you're screwed when it comes to managing them. Anyway, let's get back to the script. Um, there's a report in uh, one of the journals about self-reported sleep problems. Uh, this is a meta-analysis of many studies. And they said that the prevalence of self-reported sleep problems in psoriatic arthritis ranges from 30% to 85%. I think you should find that shocking. There were six studies that actually quoted a number of patients who said they had poor sleep quality. And the number was, what percentage do you think of PSA patients say they have poor? 73%. And that's threefold higher than normal healthy controls where it's only 27%. You know, there's a sleep problem epidemic, at least in the United States, at least in affluent countries. And in this study, sleep ranked within in the top four of health related quality of life domains for psoriatic arthritis patients. Again, you need to be a sleep specialist. You need to hear more lectures about sleep, know how you're going to manage sleep. You don't have to use highly addictive medicines. Um, you do have to be a proponent of good sleep habits and maybe getting sleep studies. Another study about psoriatic arthritis, I think is a no brainer, but it's a good reminder. It's looking at a really large cohort like amongst almost a half a million lumbar disc disease surgery. They looked at the patients who had psoriatic arthritis and showed that compared to the people without psoriatic arthritis, the morbidity associated with the procedure was 9% with psoriatic arthritis and 2% lower or without. And that they were particularly impressed by higher rates of VTE, 1.4% with PSA and 0.7% without. They also had more unfavorable outcomes, and these were statistically different in the PSA. So not surprising that a chronic inflammatory arthritis patient has major surgery and they're at risk for VTE, right? Chronic inflammatory arthritis patients are going to have more in the way of co other comorbidities that may go into play during surgery, hospitalization, etc. something we need to pay attention to. Uh, I like this report this uh, past week or this past month. From Annals of Rheumatic Disease, a viewpoint article written by Desiree Vanderheide, uh, representing the ASAS group. That's the Assessment of Spondyl Arthritis International Society, ASAS. Um, and this expert consensus group, led by Desiree, um, basically comes out and says, we no longer want to use the term ankylosing spondylitis. It's historic. It comes from an era when we didn't have the tools we have now, and now the preferred term really should be. Spondyl arthritis, AXPA, either radiographic or non-radiographic, whichever you prefer. The reason is we now have many studies that look into the pathogenesis, including MRI, showing that this is not just an SI-only disease, that this doesn't always start in the SI joint, and there's a lot more going into these patients and their manifestations. They say it is okay to use radiographic AXPA interchangeably with ankylosing spondylitis, but they do prefer the former to the latter. Also, they do go into this in this editorial about what tools to use in better assessing people, and, and they prefer the ASDAS, the AS, 
the ankles, the AS, I guess that's axial spinal arthritis disease activity score. Anyway, this is important for all of us. It's certainly important to those of you who consider yourselves spa mavens. Uh, thyroid disease in autoimmune patients like lupus and RA and yeah, it's a dime a dozen, is it not? You see it all the time. Do you pay any attention to it? Pretty much not. You use it as an explanation for a positive ANA. But what's the quantification of all this? Well, a study done, uh, I think this was out of, I want to say this was out of Sweden. Yeah, it's a Swiss registry of 13,000 new onset RA patients compared to 63,000 age match controls. Um RA patients are more likely to have autoimmune thyroid disease at diagnosis. And what's important about this paper, it says that RA patients who go on biologic therapy, guess what? They have less autoimmune thyroid disease than match controls. And that the drop was like, I think it was greatest with TNF inhibitors. But if you're on a biologic, it dropped like 46% compared to, again, the control group as far as the incidence, again, of autoimmune thyroid disease. Something to be said about control of inflammation, and when you don't control it, the spinoffs in other diseases. And, you know, there is a lot of this literature that once you have one autoimmune disease, you get other autoimmune disease. I often wonder about those, but I think that this is a nice example about uh, if you don't control the inflammation, maybe you do get more autoimmune thyroid disease. A Danish study looked at 106,000 adults with osteoporotic hip uh, fractures. It could be hip, um, and these are major fractures, uh, hip, vertebrae, wrist, humerus. Um, and they compared them uh, 1 to 10 to normal controls and found that uh, patients who have these major osteoporotic fractures have a significant mortality risk uh, in the first 30 days following their first index major fracture. So in the case of uh, hip fractures, women have an 11-fold increased risk for getting uh, of dying in the first 30 days. Men have a 16-fold increased risk of dying in the first day. Again, patients who have their first fracture, there's a lot going on. And I think, you know, we talked before about the problem of Patients having their first major fracture and they're elderly and no one does a DEXA afterwards. Are you kidding me? Hello? Wake up. Rheumatologists do this all the time. The most common cause of mortality in this study was, in fact, pneumonia. So it may be the immobilization, being elderly. Who knows? My last two reports, uh, I got three more reports. The next two deal with kind of with fibromyalgia and fatigue. So this past week, the CDC published its uh, evaluation and report based on a uh, the NHIS um, U.S.-based population-based uh, survey, um, where it looks at a number of different health conditions, and they quantified the number of people who have chronic fatigue syndrome. But wait, of course, that's fibromyalgia, is it not? But no, the CDC doesn't call it that. They call it myalgic. Encephalomyelitis slash chronic fatigue syndrome, because that's the new preferred terminology. I ain't writing that in any of my charts, I'll tell you that. But I understand that there's been a lot, there's been NIH consensus panels on this. This is the recommended term. This is the, there are rules for diagnosis and for study. And maybe we can get better insights as opposed to just lumping them all into fibromyalgia. I'm an old timey, 
uh, curmudgeon of a rheumatologist. But nonetheless, the CDC reports that the estimated um, prevalence of this is 1.3% of adults have chronic fatigue syndrome slash uh, ME slash CFS. I call it fiber fibromyalgia. Anyway, um, the big part of this is that that's 1% of all adults that you need to be considering. Again, in a rheumatology clinic, I think this makes up at least 10%, if not 20% of all your consults. Either which way, this accounts for 18 to $51 billion annually in healthcare costs. The review goes over who's at risk, more so in women, more so as you get older, more so in white uh, non-Hispanics, that's 1.5%, compared to Asians that were and Hispanics, that was half that rate. More so with income, so affluence. More so in rural um, individuals. And it goes up with lower income. Although the magnitude in low... I've always thought that fibromyalgia, chronic fatigue, affected everybody. Pretty much the young, the old, all ages, all races, all sexes. But this says that there are some differences. And the differences in lower income versus moderate or higher income is, I think... It's significant, but it's small. You know, it's like the, I think the odds ratio is like 1.6 or something like that. So it, it, it's up there. That's kind of good. Uh, but anyway, I think it's important that you know that this resource exists out there to describe the ME-CFS syndrome. Uh, ULAR came out with, during uh, right after or during a, a, a ACR came out with the uh, ULAR recommendations on fatigue. Wow. Big issue. I mean, what do we treat? more than pain, uh, fatigue's a major issue, is it not? Um, and they wanted to answer the question. They had a task force, I think it's 25 people, it's multinational, they got a few patients uh, with fatigue on there. Um, I'm sure the panel got fatigued doing this. You know, they did a literature search, they went through um, a process by which they scored the recommendations and the, uh, um, the overarching um, uh, principles uh, they really wanted to um, answer the question of, you know, how do you, uh, what can you use to more effectively treat these people? What can you use to more safely treat these people? So the overarching principles, there were four. Recommendations, there were four. And I'm going to tell you right up front, I think they missed the opportunity. I think they undershot it. They gave us kind of common sense things that everyone should say. I didn't need it, you know, six months in a panel of 26 um, my apologies for um, being disappointed, but I would expect a lot out of this, including some drug names, you know, specific tests, doses, who to refer to specifically. And they were not. They were more conceptual. So they, number one on the overarching principle, they say be aware that fatigue is a problem and it is due to many interacting biologic, psychosocial, and social factors. Everything can cause fatigue, basically. That doesn't help. Fatigue should be monitored and managed. Well, that everyone would agree on. That fatigue management should be shared decision-making between you, the clinician, and the patient, and maybe other clinicians or other uh, people in the team. And a management of fatigue needs to be based on the patient's needs and preferences, as well as considering all the other stuff the patient brings to the table. Comorbidities, psychosocial problems, etc. Well, I'm not too enthused by the overarching principles. Let's get to recommendations for some insights. 
One, HCPs um, should regularly assess the presence of fatigue, its severity, and impact, and how the patient is coping with that. And you should do that on every consultation and visit. Okay. I do ask that question in every one of my visits with a survey question. And a high number of people answer that they have fatigue. A high percentage of those have fibromyalgia or sleep disorders. Um, and many do have inflammatory disorders too. Second recommendation, fatigue should be uh, offered tailored access to physical activity interventions. They're basically saying, if you've got fatigue, you should exercise it out. Go to, go to a therapist. Um, I find this to be a difficult recommendation. Number three, fatigues uh, should be offered access to psychoeducational interventions. I'll translate that and I'll probably get it wrong by saying that's cognitive behavioral therapy. And we talked about that last week on the podcast. I still think that that's a very good intervention. And I do think this is a good recommendation, actually. Uh, and lastly, they say worsening of fatigue should trigger an evaluation for inflammatory disease activity status and consider immunomodulatory uh, treatment initiation or change. Are you kidding me? Worsening of fatigue is, number one, how you sleeping? Two, what's going on in your life? Three, is there signs of depression or anxiety? Uh, I mean, these are the things I'm dealing with first. I'm not going to say that this is immediately due to, you know, a CRP that triples or the development of a of severe anemia because of a coexistent new malignancy or heart failure. No, those are things that are in the differential. But that's the fourth and final recommendation. You should have your own add tos to this list. Our last report comes from uh, I thought it was a good report that was published. Uh, yesterday in MedPage Today, and we put it on the website, talks about a TNF inhibitor study in axial spondoarthritis showing that men do much better than women. And in this study, um, looking at the ASDAS, I think the success was 66% in men, 53% in women. Um, and, you know, the, we keep seeing this over and over again. Um, women are up to up to 20% less likely to achieve the results that men do. Uh, w women are less likely to stay on medications over time. Um, they're less likely to even be treated with more aggressive therapy, although this study was about everybody getting a TNF inhibitor. Um, I think this is a big issue. It's one of the challenging issues that we identified during April of 2023 during the Women in Rheumatology uh, campaign. I actually did a, a video on that on why women tend to do worse. And there's a multitude of reasons, but no one's really quite clear about that. If you want clarity on that, I'm going to recommend that you go to Room Now Live. Room Now Live has a presentation um, in the first day in our uh, psoriatic arthritis hot topics session uh, where Lee Eater from the University of Toronto is, to is going to talk on gender differences in PSA outcomes and how they might be managed differently or how women don't do just as well. She'll offer up the data and offer up suggestions. I think you'll find that really insightful. In that same session, Alexis Ogby is going to go over all the guidelines on PSA, ACR, ULAR, and GRAPA. And then finally, uh, a world-class dermatologist, very well known in the derm world, um, April Armstrong from UCLA is going to talk about how they choose their therapies in psoriatic disease. And I think that'll be insightful for the rheumatologist.
We'll see you at roomnow.live. Take care.